doesn't seem to prevent people from giving a good red hot crack at trying to guess when the day of the world will be. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, you might uh, know, who is a well-known scientist, one who really put together some of our fundamental thinking, understanding of how gravity works. He figured out ways to track, to understand and anticipate the path that planets would take in the heavens. He was one who could see and understand what was to happen in the heavens themselves. But he also had uh, a blind confidence that he could anticipate when the Lord Jesus would return. He wrote a tract explaining when he thought that date was going to be, um, the things that would have to happen before it, when it certainly wouldn't happen, and the rough time about when he imagined it might. He imagined that tracking the planets in the heavens was not that different in terms of tracking the movements of God himself. But no, Jesus' return simply won't conform to the rhythms and rules of the physical universe that we might be able to anticipate in that kind of way. Our time would be better prepared, spent being prepared for a zombie uh, outbreak and apocalypse than attempting to predict when the return of the, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus might be. And Paul is saying here, don't let spiritual preference, don't let those who spiritually imagine that they can wrap up the future don't let them fool you with utterly vain speculation about dates and times. They won't have it right. They won't anticipate it. Technological advances have given humanity unprecedented control in engineering the course of our own futures, our own experience of life. And nowadays, even the inevitable and inescapable birth pains of childbirth can perhaps at least be a little bit managed with epidurals and C-sections and all other kinds of medical marvels. But when Paul speaks about birth pains here in chapter in verse 3, he's describing something that doesn't have the marvels of modern medicine to take the edge off. He's speaking of that which is unpredictable and uncontrollable, is unstoppable once it starts. He's speaking about that which is beyond our capacity to manage and control. So Paul says, will be the return. Yet Jesus' disciples find their security about the future, about the return of the Lord Jesus, not in our ability to predict it, know when it's going to happen, nor in our ability to control it. That's normally how we settle our anxious minds, isn't it, uh, in, in this life? We try and figure out how we can predict what's going to happen or figure out ways to control what's going to happen. But that's not how believers find security and a set of peace of mind about the Lord Jesus' return. Have a look at what Paul says in verse 4 and following. He says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day, that is the day of the Lord's return, should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. See, it's not our ability to predict or control the future that gives followers of Jesus comfort and security about that future day in which the Lord Jesus will return. Rather, what gives us a calm and settled heart and mind is the knowledge that we belong to that day. That coming day is where we will find ourselves most at home. I wonder if you've ever had uh, this experience. You can probably remember from your own childhood, maybe you've got your own kids or nephews or nieces who have that anxiety of being alone when they go to bed in the dark, 
fear of the darkness, fear of the unknown that might be there in the dark. Uh, now maybe we can, you know, whip out a night light that might take the edge off uh, for the for that those long dark hours of night. But really, nothing can comfort an anxious child like the rising of the sun. Uh, the nightlight might take the edge off, might give them some little momentary sense of comfort when they're surrounded by this time, this period that is uncertain too. But it's when the sun rises that their hearts finally can rest and be settled. Truly it is. And that's what Paul is saying about the believer's experience of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a moment of great anxiety for those who are followers of Jesus. It is the moment when our hearts will finally be set at ease. It's the day to which we belong, in which we will find ourselves most calm and settled and at ease. In comparison to what Paul says, is now the dark. The truth is that when I speak with believers in all kinds of different places, different experiences, often the future is for them a source of great anxiety. It's what they most fear it's what sparks the greatest anxiety in them about what they might expect or find on that day. But Paul says, you guys are children of that day. You belong to that day. In that day, it really hearts to most of it. Most settled. Most calm. Most assured. I have a look with me where Paul takes his thoughts following on from that. Verse 6 is where we are. Paul begins to reflect on what the implications are that we belong to this coming day when the Lord Jesus will return. Verse 6. So then, Paul says, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Now, what exactly does Paul mean by this double metaphor of being awake and sober on the one hand, rather than asleep or drunk on the other? In what sense are God's people to be awake or watchful in contrast to those who are asleep? Now, the difference between being a sleeping and awaking person, of course, is the degree to which we are conscious of a broader reality around about us. That's why sleeping people are such great targets for practical jokes. They're not aware of what's going on around them. You can set anything up the way you want to surprise them and take them unawares. The sleeping person is not conscious of the broader reality of what's happening around them. The sleeper, you might say, is dead to the world. They live, but with no consciousness of anything beyond their own immediate thoughts. And Paul says, we're not to live like that, we're not to live with our heads only in our own personal immediate present. Some of us are not so much ignorant of Jesus' return, as we've simply allowed our awareness of his coming back to slip to the very back of our minds, buried beneath the mountain of other stuff that we bring to the front. Why do we do that? Why do we have this habit, perhaps, of dulling our attentiveness to this reality that the Lord Jesus is going to return again? Uh, drunkenness is used in these verses uh, as a metaphor. So I'm not going to launch into an in-depth moral analysis of how we can misuse alcohol. It's being used here as a metaphor for the reality of not being aware and attentive to the Lord 
Okay. Yet there is a reason why people so often do resort to drunkenness when overwhelmed by a sense of powerlessness about their future is Perhaps we can understand why people do go to alcohol to dull their sense of anxiety or fears about the future. When something about the future lies outside our power or our control, our ability to shape it or to direct it, dulling our thoughts with alcohol can seem the fastest way to put a damper on, to mute our rising anxiety and fears. And if you've ever noticed that tendency in yourself, can I encourage you to do something about it? Come and chat with me, chat with someone else you trust. Because it is a human instinctive thing for where there are fears and anxieties that rise and we just feel we don't have the power of capacity to deal with, is to find a way to dampen them and mute them and ignore them. And Paul is saying with respect to the Lord Jesus' return, don't let your thinking, your awareness, your attentiveness of the Lord Jesus' return be dampened. For it's something you don't need to be fearful or anxious of. That day is the day in which you We're not to simply manage our anxiety by pressing mute on our thoughts about the future, by dulling our attendance to Jesus' return. But how exactly might we stay awake? How can we stay wakeful to the reality of Jesus' return without being overwhelmed by all the questions and the worries and anxieties that don't want to How do we keep sober eyes fixed on Jesus' return when the happy hour of a distracted life sometimes seems to promise much more immediate comfort and consolation in the midst of our struggles or our future recovery. I think it all comes down to the matter of our wardrobe, what it is that we choose to wear. It's a new metaphor that Paul switches to giving our focus to as he wraps up his reflections on the Lord Jesus' return. Have a look with me again in verse 8. We touched on the first part of verse 8 a moment ago, but we'll read from there. Verse 8 Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the amazing features of human ingenuity when it comes to surviving different environments and different circumstances has been our ability to dress ourselves for environments that otherwise would just not be able to survive or endure. Uh, the, the picture there on, on my right uh, at the top there is uh, an early advanced version of a puffer jacket, puffy jacket. It's, it's a, basically uh, in, in, in to made these jackets out of seal intestines that they would blow full of air and they'd basically be like a warm insulated jacket that would allow them to endure deeply freezing cold environments to explore them and to settle them, make new homes amongst them. And of course, it's right through to the space age technology that made missions like the Apollo missions possible. Humans have often had an ingenuity in dressing ourselves to endure through environments that we otherwise wouldn't be able to endure. And likewise, our own age as Christians, this own age in which we're living, is not always that hospitable to the Christian way of life. We belong to a different day. This is not an age that we're most naturally suited to. It's not an age that we belong to. 
indigenously. Paul calls us to dress ourselves in that which will help us persevere, that which will preserve us until the Lord's day dawns. Dress yourselves, Paul says, in faith, in love, and in hope. We'll reflect a little bit on what it means to dress ourselves in these three as we finish up. Now, it's striking just how often this trilogy, this trinity of ideas, faith, hope, and love, are used together throughout the New Testament. The New Testament writers often put these three together. And here the Apostle Paul is describing faith, hope, and love as being armed, protective wear that allows us to be sustained in this particular time of living, in this age, in the darkness, while we wait for the dawning of the Lord Jesus' return. And Paul gives most of his is what fixes our attention on the end of God, the ultimate destiny for which our lives are headed. And Paul says here that we're to dress ourselves in the helmet of hope, the hope of salvation. Now, salvation is a really broad idea in the scriptures. We often sometimes tend to think of salvation as just being saved from punishment, and that's certainly part of what Paul is describing here. Salvation is a much broader idea as well. Salvation includes our adoption as God's children, uh, being inherited, uh, inheritable share in Jesus' own glory and honour. It's a salvation from ordinary shame, being homeless, having nowhere to rest our heads. Uh, perhaps some of you have taken on a rescue pet. Uh, when you rescue and take a rescue pet on board, bring out the rescue pet home, you're not just saving it from perhaps a bad outcome living on the street. You're giving it a new home, a better environment in which to live. And that gives something of a picture of what the Christian hope is as well. Our hope is not just to be saved from something, which we'll reflect on in a moment, but to be saved for living in a new relationship, in a new secure family unit as God's own children. The salvation in which we hope will also include the dawning of the resurrection life. Life free from the grief of all these bodily frailties and frustrations that we walk in here with this evening. Salvation will include resurrected bodies from the dead. So too will Jesus bear us safely, as this passage particularly highlights for us, the day of judgment that comes with his return. For those of us who entrusted ourselves to Jesus, ours is a future marked by salvation rather than by That's the Christian hope that we're to clothe ourselves in, that helps us endure all the way to that day of the Lord Jesus. But, but what grounds do we have for a man? What grounds do we have for justifying our hope that this salvation is anything more than just wishful thinking? Is it just a, another version of optimistic thinking, thinking about the future, hoping it's going to be great? Or do we have some ground for it? I think the ground of Christian hope is actually in what we place our faith in. It's kind of described for us in verse 10. Have a look at me in verse 10. Uh, verse 10 describes what Christian faith is. We read, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. The Christian faith is focused on trusting that Christ has already in the past died for us. And it's trusting in what Christ did as he died for us that gives us hope and confidence 
for the future. It's trusting that Christ died our death for us. That gives us confidence that whether we are asleep in death at the moment as a believer, or whether we are still living in faith, our future is secured in Him. Our hope for the future grows out of our faith, our trust, in what Jesus' past death has already achieved and delivered on for us. Our faith in Jesus' past death for us, our trust that Jesus already died our death for us, frees us from the fear that death might yet hold ultimate sway over our future destiny. It frees us to have hope. But this helmet of hope and the breastplate of faith, our hope in what Jesus is going to deliver, and our faith or our trust in what Jesus already has delivered, they're not just for our benefit alone. And I think sometimes we think that way, don't we? That we long to have a stronger faith, we long to have a more all-encompassing hope, so that we ourselves will live more and more settled lives, that we won't be as troubled by the things that might save us over the course of our lives. But as we read on, we see that our faith and our hope is not actually just for us. Have a look at me at the final verse, verse 11. Uh, we've missed one bit of the armour, one piece of the clothing, that is love. And I think really what Paul is reflecting on in this final verse is what it means to dress ourselves in love, having given verse 11. Paul concludes, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Is that not the embodiment of love, the third piece of armour that Paul calls us to dress ourselves in? We have to use whatever faith and hope God has dressed us in for the loving encouragement of others around about us. Are you perhaps currently dressed in what you feel is really pretty well-fitting faith, in strong and hardy hope? Friends, God has dressed you that way so that you might lovingly devote yourself to encouraging those who don't feel as securely fitted out in their faith and hope as you. It's not just to give you a more settled experience of the Christian life. It's so that you might be secure to give yourself in love others around you. Some of you here this evening, are you perhaps dressed in a faith that feels like it's framed? Are you kitted out perhaps in hope that feels like it's full of holes? Then God has given you these brothers and sisters around about you to stand alongside you to lovingly encourage you in faith and hope when you feel like you can't endure it in your own strength any longer. See, friends, we don't simply stand or fall on the strength of our own faith and hope. We're strengthened, encouraged to endure by the faith and hope of those who stand lovingly alongside us. If your faith and hope does feel settled and secure, then we can't afford not to have you gathering here with us each Sunday. Because your faith and hope is partly what will enable others to endure as well. And if your own faith and hope feel pretty frail, then your being here gives us the opportunity to love you by encouraging you and strengthening you. And perhaps, I might even be able to say this, I know that this is going to be hard, probably for some of us, to dare even believe. 
But even if your own faith and hope are frail, your being here actually does strengthen the faith and hope of others who are here as well. Because as they see you enduring, even knocked around and buffeted and beaten, as they see you enduring faith and hope, it strengthens them to value their faith and hope in what the Lord Jesus does for the Lord deeply. We simply can't endure by faith and hope alone. Love is required as well, because it's what and love is what enables us to use our faith and hope to build one another up that we might endure until that day when the Lord Jesus returns. Faith, hope, and love. Dressed in these three, we need not fear being ashamed when the day of the Lord dawns unexpectedly and unstoppably and suddenly upon us. Dressed in these three, faith, hope, and love, we have everything we need to endure until the day of Jesus' coming, until it dawns gloriously upon our weary and battered faces. We need to remind ourselves as we approach Christmas that Jesus didn't just come once in the manger. He's going to come a second time as well. To breathe life into that which has been sustained by our faith, our hope, and our love. Let's pray that God might do that in us while we wait. Dearest Father, we do thank you that you came in the form of frail human flesh, in and through your Son, born in the man of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in him you know what human experience is like. We thank you that in him our fears of failure and death have been dealt with and defeated in his dying our death for us. And yet, Father, as we wait for the day for him to return, we often find our own faith and hope buffeted and beaten. We ask that you might strengthen our faith and our hope. And Father, when you do, enable us to use that strength and faith and hope to love those for whom faith and hope is more difficult, a struggle. Father, we ask you to work in us in this way, that you might safely bring us all to to the day that the Lord Jesus returns. That day that will dawn, and we will find ourselves at home, secure and at ease as we've never been before. In Jesus' name we pray. Please feel free to send through any questions you might have, uh, either about uh, the the talk or the passage, things I did or didn't say from that passage. Uh, I'm going to need to ask Lauren if it's okay. Do you mind bringing up uh, the order of service because I forgot to bring it up with me? Uh, one of the things we're reflecting on then is the hope and faith that we share together. And so I thought that before we move on with the remainder of the service, we would stand. So please do that now and join with me in saying words of.